Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. Uh, Today is a little bit of a different episode in terms of content or subject matter because we're moving a little bit away from wildlife and conservation and nature and we're moving more towards my professional life as a vet and an issue that is really important to me that I've been talking about for a very, very long time. A lot of vets are very passionate about and it can be a little bit of a contentious topic for some uh, because we're going to talk about brachycephalic dogs in particular. Um, so the flat-faced breeds of dogs, especially the ones that are kind of bred in a very extreme or exaggerated way. Um, and those kind of physical characteristics can cause them some health problems. So I have two absolute experts to talk to on this episode, which is really, really good. I have Alison Skipper, who is a vet and a PhD student studying the history of pedigree dog health. And then I also have Dr. Rowena Packer, who's a lecturer in companion animal web. Um, behaviour and welfare science at the Royal Veterinary College. So Alison, Rowena, thank you so much for joining me on this. It's great to have you on. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. So I think probably the best place to start, we could talk for hours about this. We'll try and keep it to to under an hour if we can. But um, this is your specialist topic. But starting from the very basics, you know, with um, people who maybe don't realise the problems here or don't really connect the dots in terms of what we've done with these dogs versus the health problems they have. Rowena, maybe we'll start with you just explaining, you know, what is a brachycephalic dog? What does that mean? So brachycephalic is related to the skull shape of the dog. And as you already said, it's colloquially known as flat-faced or sometimes short-muzzled breeds. But it literally, when we're talking about the anatomy of a brachycephalic dog, we're talking about a dog who has a short and wide head. So when we think about the cranium and their muzzles, then it's um, relatively short um, from front to back, but it's wide from side to side. That's to differentiate it from what we'd probably call a mesocephalic dog. So that's a dog with a head of medium proportions. Um, we think about popular breeds like Labrador Retrievers, where we've got um, kind of moderate medium length muzzle and a slightly narrower um, cranium. And then we go through to the other end of the spectrum with our doliocephalic dogs who have a long and narrow head. So this is where we're thinking about like our sight hound breeds. Um, so things like the greyhound who have the very long muzzle. We often use brachycephaly to actually encompass an awful lot of breeds that have an awful lot of anatomical and disease burden variation between them. Um, there's probably roughly, depending on who's counting, 20 plus brachycephalic breeds, depending on where we say the cutoff is to it. But one of the eternal questions I think we all get is, well, what is what breeds are counted as brachycephalic? But there is probably not one consensus answer for that. But um, for today, I think thinking of breeds with a shorter muzzle, and quite often we think of what we might call the extreme brachycephalics. So particularly thinking of breeds like the pug, the French bulldog, and the bulldog who have a very short muzzle, um, and are often the more the more popular breeds that that we are more likely to focus in on. I imagine today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just very quickly, because we will expand on this, what are the kind of list of health problems that having that short, wide um, head tends to predispose them to? 
I feel like every year we've probably got another one to add to that list with the um, evidence-generating power, particularly from our great team at RVC with Vet Compass, who have now mapped an awful lot of disorders um, that are either associated with brachycephaly per se, so as a general group, or individual brachycephalic breeds. So there is some, as I said, disease burden variation between them. But there's kind of a list of problems from head to tail, unfortunately. Obviously, when we think of the progenitor species of our domestic dog, the grey wolf, we have changed dogs a lot, partly through the domestication process, but then partly, as I'm sure Alison can explain beautifully, intentionally through selective breeding um, over the past century or so. Um, but when we think about the, um, the the changes to their anatomy, that generally then correlates to changes with their health. So the kind of poster boy of brachycephalic health issues would probably be airway problems, so brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome. So I use the analogy of it being an obstacle course of air trying to get from the outside world into the lungs, but everything's getting in the way, often because of the facial structures that are impaired when selected for a flat face. But also we've got problems, for example, with the eyes. We have very short, um, shallow sockets. So the kind of analogy that rather than the eye being held in a nice deep ice cream scoop, it's instead in a teaspoon. So we've got eyes that are very protruding that lots of people like, but have the potential to um, pop out. Um, which is obviously not not ideal for dog nor owner, nor probably for vet either. Um, but also chronic drying of the eyes, the skin folds that again that are often selected for um, either over the nose or around the face can have lots of skin fold problems. But also we're learning more that there are ear problems, brain problems, spinal problems, particularly related to spinal malformations, um, obesity being a big issue, gastrointestinal tract problems. There probably isn't a body system that isn't affected by selection for brachycephaly in part because when we select for one anatomical trait it often brings along others with it so we know that there's some genetic underpinning of the short muzzle that also relates to having a malformed spine and a kinky tail so I think that's partly the challenge of trying to select um, just based on phenotypic features so the things that we can see is we often unintentionally select other things too but there probably isn't a body system that said that doesn't have some impact. And each year, just this week, we've had papers coming out, for example, cherry eye. Um, so, uh, again, an uncomfortable condition of um, the, the gland in the dog's eye that pops out. Again, looks really unpleasant and needs a surgery to be to be fixed, which, again, is predisposed in brachies, particularly the bulldog. So it's, it's quite an alarming list, I think, for most of us. And I'm sure that most veterinary professionals out there will be well versed in, in all of those conditions in brackets. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, as vet professionals, we're well used to it and kind of um, despairing at times because we're seeing it just generation after generation after generation. But a lot of listeners to this show are not necessarily, you know, veterinary professionals and, and might be alarmed to hear just the extent of, of the problem. But over to you, Alison, what is the kind of history behind why brachycephalism has become a kind of a, a popular feature or become such an exaggerated feature of certain breeds um, in kind of pedigree dog breeding? So people have obviously bred dogs for different purposes and to look different from each other for thousands of years. And certainly over 200 years ago, the early comparative anatomists who were sort of first classifying, trying to classify human race and work out what um, differentiates different species from each other were already classifying dogs according to their skull shape, although they didn't use the term brachycephaly at that point. Um, 
so these things have been going on for a while. Um, and some of the brachycephalic breeds that we talk about now, particularly pugs and bulldogs, have been with us for a very long time. But their shapes certainly did change and become more exaggerated um, as a result of the um, sort of creation of formalized dog shows in the mid 19th century. Um, so um, what happened in the sort of mid-Victorian period was that following the development of agricultural shows where people would compare and um, display the new types of agricultural livestock, the same principle was applied to dog shows, which had previously been a sort of slightly dodgy underground affair, um, you know, based around um cockfighting and that sort of thing and suddenly okay. in the middle of the 19th century the dog show changed to become a very fashionable popular activity that moved right up the social scale um, and this um, culminated in 1873 with the um, creation of the Kennel Club which was developed as a social club um, for a number of um, sort of wealthy um, professional landowners and um professional men to legitimise this new pastime and regulate it um, because it was becoming a bit of a free-for-all with really anybody who fancied showing a dog making up their own rules of how to do so. Um, and so they set in place um, a sort of system for this activity, which with some modifications basically still persists today. So the key difference is that before that time, there were what you might call types of dog, such as a bulldog or a Dalmatian or whatever, but they were really only recognised from their appearance and function. So um, a bulldog was originally a dog bred to um, fight um, bulls, for attack bulls for sport. Um, and then when that was banned in 1835, um, they became used for things like rat killing. But they were defined loosely by their function and roughly by their appearance. Once kennel club, the kennel club and dog shows had become established, then each breed um, was um, given a set standard for its appearance, a breed standard which described its physical features um, in a written description, which people judging that breed in the show ring were meant to use as um, a sort of blueprint for the preferred or ideal appearance of each breed of dog. Um, and that also separated each breed by its physical appearance. So what had previously existed on a sort of continuum with one type blend blending into another became separated into separate populations. And while different breeds obviously varied very much in their appearance, some breeds in particular were distinguished by distinctive physical features, which then tended to become more exaggerated because judges and breeders would prefer the specimens that had those features in a more exaggerated form. And that process altered the shape of a number of breeds particularly some of the brachycephalic breeds, but some more than others, with bulldogs being a particularly remarkable example of a breed that really came to look totally different as a result of the dog show. So the sort of bulldog that listeners will be able to imagine now, the sort of Winston Churchill cartoon bulldog, was basically a creation of the 19th century show ring. It just didn't used to look like that before. Some other breeds, such as the pug, were also modified in the show ring, but you could look, I can show you a picture of a pug from 1750, which is very much more like a pug that we'd know today. So 
each breed has its own history, but broadly speaking, it was the late 19th century that really transformed them physically. Yeah. So they have, you know, they have fluctuated in terms of their trends or what's kind of fashionable or desirable over time. Yeah, definitely. So the biggest change was in the years around 1900 when dog showing had really got underway and uh, there was a lot of money in certain breeds, which um, concentrated the minds wonderfully of some people who concentrated very much on producing physical features. But But different breeds have continued to alter since, often becoming more extreme, but not always or necessarily. And even today, there's more plasticity in their physical shape than some people might imagine if breeders decide that they want to start selecting for something slightly different even today the breeds do change as a result of that in a surprisingly few number of generations yeah yeah um can you just explain because i know when sometimes when i'm talking about this people go but i don't get how that happened or why what do you mean the the show ring has changed them can you just explain a little bit kind of what selection pressure is and how quickly we can change the appearance of a dog by kind of aggressively selecting for certain features. Yeah. So, I mean, dog breeders at the time, they were making this process um, happen first at the end of the 19th century, very consciously thought that they were mimicking natural selection, which of course was a very trendy recent discovery of Darwin's at the time, that if you strongly select for any physical characteristic, be that through the pressure of nature with wildlife or through um, deliberate selection by people, you can alter the appearance of the progeny very dramatically in a surprisingly few generations. Um, so, you know, in nature, there are those classic examples like the peppered moth turning from white to black with industrialization and back to white again when the Clean Air Act came. Um, in the world of dogs, um, you can you could see some surprisingly dramatic changes in a very short space of time. Um, so, for example, um, if you look at the average bulldog today, you'll see that it has a very short, stubby tail, which is known in the in the bulldog world as a screw tail, which um, pe- vets and people like Rowena are concerned about because it's essentially part of a spine that has other abnormalities um, and you can get disease associated with the short screw tail. Now, originally, bulldogs didn't have that. Um, Again, if you visualise a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, which has a sort of more typical long, thin tail, that's the tail the bulldog used to have until the 1890s. And then in the 1890s show ring, some dogs appeared with shorter more twisted tails because that was linked, as Rowena said, to the other other physical features that they were selecting for in the show ring at that time, sort of more twisted front legs and a heavier build and a different shape face and um, a more sort of heavily built construction. And as a result of that selection process, the tail of bulldogs totally changed over a period of about 10 to 15 years. And you, you could, when you look in the archive, as I've done, and look at reports from judges judging shows in the 1890s, you get commentators, um, you know, saying how wonderful this is, and other commentators saying, well, this is terrible and appalling, this isn't even in the breed standard, why are we doing it? And if you look at pictures of those dogs, you see, as you look at dogs over that 10 or 20 years, more and more of them getting shorter and shorter tails. So it's really a process that can appear very rapidly. And in the last 10 years or so, when show 
bulldog people have been trying to reverse these changes, although they've still got short screw tails, they are already a little bit less extreme, many of them, than they were 10 or 15 years ago in that particular subsection of the population. It's really extraordinary how much of an effect selective breeding can have in just a few generations. Great. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And I suppose the issue with that screw tail is not only the hidden um, kind of tendency for the spine to also be kind of twisted or abnormally shaped and cause compression or neurological problems, but also that the tail sits in a a kind of a pad of skin and fat and and tends to get very irritated inside that area where skin is rubbing on skin, hair rubbing on hair and things. So Yeah, yeah. that's the concern, Um, of course. Yeah, yeah. So um, we'll talk a little bit about kind of breeding and and health schemes in a bit. But um, Rowena, part of your research that I've heard you talk about several times is kind of the motivations behind, you know, people owning these dogs and breeding these dogs in certain ways and things. There's a very, um, some might say, perverse reason or strange reason why we are attracted to brachycephaly, not only in dogs, but in other animals as well. Um, And it's to do with this thing called the baby schema. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, it does feel really paradoxical at times, obviously, l- having a really long list of health problems and then saying, well, why are thousands and thousands of people flocking to these breeds on a yearly basis? Either if they care about their own hearts, we know the heartbreak and the hurt of having a, a pet with illnesses, particularly chronic disease, and also the financial elements in terms of just seeing how incredibly costly it can be to keep these dogs well. So trying to pull apart whether these are effects that are biological, which as you've referred to with the baby scheme, or perhaps more cultural influences and obviously the intersection of the two. But absolutely, there's a lot of um, discussion around the concept of baby schema, which is um, the configuration of a face of an infant, um, particularly in mammals, but actually there's baby schema studies that show even in birds and there's even a study in reptiles that have maternal care as part of their um, history that there is a baby schema effect. So you do have young that have um, eyes that are relatively large to their face. They have a nose that's relatively small. Their head is relatively large compared to their body. And it's thought to be a kind of social releaser that when we look at a face like that, that we get this so-called cute response and that we have this overwhelming desire to give care to those individuals. And, you know, we the classic is thinking of the face of a seal pup and being like, oh, my God, how can I resist that? Um, and there's obviously some quite powerful biology going on there. Um, now, in terms of dogs, it's thought that brachycephalic dogs fit more closely with this configuration this was some work by conrad conrad i'll get it out eventually conrad lorenz um that characterized this and again it's really compelling when you see the young versus the adult and how we've got that very snub face that then grows out over time but with brachies obviously we have puppies that have very flat faces and i'm sure anybody who's seen newborn puppies of pretty much any breed knows that they are very flat faced um but that they eventually um the muzzle starts to grow over the first few weeks but with brachies they retain those features and it's thought that that then reinforces these effects for the owners who maybe they've been drawn to brachies because lady gaga's got one or whoever is the the person of the moment with one but also that you've got this secondary biological effect that their face makes you want to care for them and they're often 
quite needy dogs um, as a kind of very broad term, both behaviourally in terms of they often want to be with you. They're very personable little dogs. I say this having a staffy cross asleep next to me who's just attached to my arm. So I know what it's like to have the classic Velcro dog. But for people who want a very friendly um, dog that likes people, there's that element. But also in terms of their health, that they can often have quite a long list of daily husbandry. So you've already alluded to that partly, Sean, with the tail pockets. So the need for cleaning of any skin folds, whether that's around their face, around their tail, around their bum, um, around their eyes, because some of the chronic eye issues. And these kind of daily caregiving tasks that probably reinforce your role as being their primary caregiver and that you need to do those things to keep them happy and healthy, potentially on a daily basis. So it's a, I think it's a really interesting phenomena in terms of how it's almost um, people have discussed it as hijacking kind of these evolutionary mechanisms and that it's almost a form of parasitism that they I was are gonna say, yeah. starts taking advantage of us again. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting one, but it's it's quite compelling even from human babies. So there's a really interesting study of college students in the US where they had artificially manipulated pictures of babies' faces to either fit the baby schema more, so the big round face, big eyes, little nose, or slightly more adult looking baby faces so eyes close together large nose smaller head and they asked which one was cuter but they actually asked which one would you rather care for and as predicted the baby schema face the their manipulated faces close to baby schema people thought were cuter but they did want to care for more so sad for the babies that don't fit that as a as a tiny infant uh makes me stare at my own son's face and think how how close are you on days where you're annoying me? Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's it's fascinating how we've potentially kind of co-opted that in other species. Yeah, yeah. And one other interesting um, factor, I suppose, that I've heard you talk about as well is the role of some of these breeds as status dogs in mm. society. And there's cultural reasons why they're popular as well, specifically when we get into the kind of bigger, beefier, you know, English bulldogs, American bullies and, and the typical fighting breeds you know um they're culturally uh, desirable for kind of another subset of people that that see them as kind of a fierce uh indicator of, of status right absolutely and i think status is such an interesting word because it's w- what you want your status to be what what is your kind of what you call your personal identity project when somebody sees you and your pet what do you want them to think of you and at one extent extreme with the brackies you've got as you said the very the thicker set the kind of molossoid bigger bracky breeds who often are associated with more testosterone fueled traditionally masculine culture if you want to say or toxic masculinity um and obviously not what we're thinking about in terms of um, the baby schema effect we're going for the opposite end of the spectrum um but also with obviously some of the very popular brackies and obviously there is changed waves in that so when i first came to work on this area back in 2009 the frenchie was barely on my radar because there was a few dozen of them being registered a year it was all about the pug who was just about to on that upward um trajectory in at least kennel club registrations who now is probably really not irrelevant of course but is a much smaller concern than than the frenchie but what um people who acquire 
the, the smaller bracky breeds want from them. We can think of them as status dogs. So some interesting work that Peter Sando out in Copenhagen has done around what we think of as extrinsically dry, driven pet ownership. So rather than wanting the dog for almost the dogginess of the dog, so for the reasons that are more intrinsically related to their character. So, for example, wanting a dog to get out in nature to enjoy the, the actual experience of, of learning what a dog is about. It's instead more about what can that dog offer you so when somebody sees you with that dog whether it's on a lead whether it's under your arm whether it's in your handbag what is it offering you in terms of status um and i think that's where we get of a lot of the whole emulation of celebrity culture and it's probably in the grand scheme of things a cheaper way to emulate a celebrity than getting the latest range rover or whatever these footballers are getting these days if you can yeah absolutely and i think you know this um, be interesting to hear from Alison in terms of the parallels here with the show ring, but where we can almost get the kind of designer knockoff so we can get uh, commercially bred um, brackies for a cheaper price that look like what we might think of as the more bona fide brackies or the ones that are bred by people who potentially have more concern for their health, that, that that's, again, a, a way, particularly younger people, to achieve that status in their friends. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good um, it's a good little segue into the next point I was going to talk about, um, which was that there almost now seems to become a divide when you start talking about who's responsible or how we can tackle the problem of, of brachycephalic health issues. And there seems to be sort of a divide between, you know, the kennel clubs and breed societies um, kind of saying, you know, we uphold the health of these breeds and we up- we write the breed standards and we are guardians of those breed standards. And then the kind of backyard breeders or irresponsible breeders or people who decide to breed from their dog once because they want them to have a litter or they spent a lot of money on that dog and they see it as a as a cash cow or you know all the various reasons but there is there does seem to be a divide Alison between kind of the legitimate organized breeding and then the kind of unregulated breeding that isn't under the control of those kind of breed standards and show scene can you talk a little bit about kind of those two competing um, kind of aspects or, or the, the rise, I suppose, of unregulated breeding? I think it, it's certainly true that there are many different types of breeder. Um, I don't think you can divide them straightforwardly into registered dogs and unregistered dogs as if one were generally good and the other were generally bad. Yeah. There are breeders who breed on different scales and for different reasons um, and with um, health and welfare as as a priority in different ways and there always have been um i mean historically as well although the popular breeds have varied there have always been breeds that were popular and fashionable at any time where people jumped on the bandwagon for money and other other breeds that have at any given time been much smaller in numbers and maintained by a sort of more loyal core of aficionados whose primary motivation wasn't money um, yeah. But at the moment, with the boom in so many brachycephalic breeds, particularly French bulldogs are, I suppose, the, the most um, clear-cut example, there certainly are different types of breeders. So there are some breeders who, although still breeding brachycephalic dogs, are certainly making efforts to breed healthier brachycephalic dogs who are only breeding from dogs that have been through health testing programmes. Um, there are 
some breeders who really love their dogs but may not even know that there is such a thing as a health testing program because they're so outside um, those circles that it's just not really crossed their radar that such a thing is possible. Um, There are people who are absolutely only breeding for money, either on a very large scale um, and there's brachycephalic breeding associated with puppy smuggling and organised crime and all sorts of extremely dubious things that the average listener might not at all imagine are linked to dog breeding, or people you know, maybe living a very hand-to-mouth existence with very little money for whom a litter of of puppies that they can sell for several thousand pounds each genuinely represents more money than they could ever hope to legally achieve any other way. So it's it's a really complicated matter um, where there's a whole spectrum of breeding ranging from somebody who really is genuinely trying to improve the health of their breed to somebody for whom that just isn't on their radar at all. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess you've mentioned, Rena, about like social media's role and things, but advertising plays an impact on that as well, isn't it? And and popularising these breeds. I think the the worrying thing we're seeing is where like new trends are coming in as well. Um, And often driven by social media, we're seeing the likes of exotic bullies coming in and really, really like toad line uh, bulldogs that are so physically deformed. Um, you know, they're really, really compromised in terms of their health. Um, so that's really, really concerning. I guess the point I was making about kind of um, kennel clubs and breed societies, ten, it tends to happen. I think that whenever this discussion comes up, and certainly whenever there's criticism leveled at the kennel clubs or breed societies who do, after all, write the breed standard, what that breed should look like, which does trickle down into all those other kind of um, kind of status quo, what the dog looks like elsewhere as well. I've seen, I think I tend to see them saying, you know, we're doing everything we can, but it's the irresponsible breeders maybe that are the bigger part of the problem. Would you think that's a fair observation? I think there's a challenging culture of scapegoating and dog breeding in general yeah. in that there always seems to be somebody who's doing worse. As you mentioned with the toad lines and some of the extremes coming through, they are quite clearly abhorrent. You know, There's so many arguments as to why that their physical features would be damaging to their welfare and why they shouldn't be bred. But I think it also masks that actually some of our current brachies are also what we'd call extreme when we look at the phenotypic spectrum and that we shouldn't be detracted from trying to help at lots of different levels Yeah. Um, when we think about that. And I think often we think about, when we're talking about, for example, with kennel clubs, what's within their scope um, for that they can change versus who is completely out of scope. So as Alison's alluded to, there's a huge part of the UK puppy trade is you know driven by organized crime which is outside of the um, sphere of influence of any one of us of any kennel club organization internationally and even within reason within the law if it's not fully enforced um so i think it's just it's very difficult and i think a lot of the kind of the the blame partitioning comes to the fact that it's just so complicated and you probably need different strategies for different suppliers each problem. I hate to say the word suppliers for puppies, but, um, but yeah. there is there is different um, different elements, and I think you know the, the of course kennel clubs internationally have an important role to play because if they, for example, in the UK are a monopoly organisation compared to, for example, the US where there's multiple kennel clubs, then they should have more sway, and I think the breed standard is often 
pulled up as one of the tangible kind of talismans of this is you're saying that these dogs should be unhealthy and in many ways you know it does um, provide a form of a blueprint for those breeds and if interpreted in certain ways can absolutely translate into a very extreme dog that can be impaired um, you know lifelong impairs um, from its from its body shape but it isn't the be-all and end-all and I certainly spent um, the a lot of the early portion of my career chasing breed standard changes and thinking that would be what would make me happy but actually now <laughs> even in the last year you know we've pushed some breed standard changes through with the French Bulldog and it's great to see them moving in the right direction we've immediately had the flack of saying it's not enough and I would agree I want more um, but as Alison said it's an evolving process and I am painfully aware that this is only there to influence a very small amount of showbred dogs um, I think to get societal change um there needs to be a really wholesale change in thinking that actually these extremes are inappropriate if we decide as that as a society and to move away from them in a much bigger way than saying oh we'll add two millimeters onto that frenchie's muzzle because it might help it breathe a bit so yeah. i think that's a really multi-pronged approach and that's where it, it's that's the huge challenge is pulling together all of these threads including things as you said like the cultural status quo in terms of is it okay for the mainstream media to exploit these dogs' images without actually thinking about what effect that has on consumers, children, yeah. people who are normalising not only disease but body shape? And that was what feels controversial. It's pretty straightforward to say we should be showing unwell dogs on TV. One of the most awful examples of that in recent time was the most recent Halo game. I can't pretend to know what Halo is, Um on on some I'm platform not either. <laughs> no um but you know the fact that they used a one of the producers pugs and it's incredibly obstructed stertorous breathing as the alien sounds and love oh, about that, that produced loads of social media around it that's i think most of us would agree that's really not appropriate but actually just using the images of extreme breeds does just normalize the shape and many people would say well some of them have that body shape and are okay well okay maybe some um but i think moving in a much bigger way towards saying you know we don't want to accept the extremes of, of dog breeds and i don't just mean toad lines i mean anything that has you know meaning that dog is born into a body that's going to impair it for the rest of its life i think that's yeah. like, it's a huge effort but who yeah. knows who knows what we can do <laughs> I know, I completely acknowledge it. I mean, we talked before um, about this recording and I just had a quick chat about how it's such a complex area and you're dealing with different audiences and you're dealing with people with totally different motivations and doing different things and there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think people can be naive to run in and say, if we just change the breed standard or if we just open the stud book or if we just do that or just do this. And, and it's like there's, there's so many things that need to be done and it's really, really hard to do it kind of collectively and, and get that result we all want. But um, obviously we're, you know, last week was um, there was some big news around dog breeding. Uh, Norway announced a ban on breeding purebred English Bulldogs and Cavalier King Charles because of the amount of health conditions they, they tend to have for their appearance. Um, and that's been quite controversial. I said to you, Alison, while, while we were waiting today, you know, I've put out a tweet on that to get people talking and it's quite simplistic, but I talked about it later on the radio last week and said, I don't think many dog lovers want to ban on certain breeds when there are so many solutions out there and what we can do for these breeds. 
Um, but where do you stand? What do you think about kind of the extreme version that Norway has come in with, with saying we're banning these the breeding of these pedigree dogs, which I think is probably a call to start outcrossing and start introducing new genetic material and, and diversity into them, would it be? I think I think it's a little unclear still from what I've seen how exactly it's intended that it would be implemented. So, I mean, I think my take on this is, you know, I completely understand why the activists felt they needed to take this legal challenge that they were frustrated by lack of progress on health and certainly the conversations that it's triggered and the sort of attention that's being drawn internationally have got to raise these issues again, which is always helpful. But um, I've I've been a vet long enough that I was a new graduate um, when the 1991 Dangerous Dogs Act was passed. So I remember the the first piece of breed-specific legislation being passed in the UK, which I think is uh, generally acknowledged to have been a disaster. Obviously, that's a little different in that that was implemented for public safety. But it, it always seems to me, I mean, if you've got a very simple piece of legislation, like, say, banning smoking in public buildings, you can see that there aren't going to be very many unexpected consequences to something like that. Something like banning certain breeds, be that because they're dangerous or because they're unhealthy, you immediately have the question of what is that breed and what isn't. You drive it underground, um, you risk problems in that always with any legislation you catch the law abiding rather than the non-law abiding. Um, and particularly with the Norway thing, I believe they're not banning the ownership. So it just means that anybody who wants one of these dogs can still get them from elsewhere anyway. This and and the sort of similar ban in the Netherlands um, previously are really interesting developments, but I don't think it's at all clear that they would necessarily translate into improvements in canine welfare. Um, And you know, it, it, it's certainly the Dangerous Dogs Act, I think, if anything, caused more problems than it solved. And I would hope that this wouldn't go the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that yourself, Rowena? Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a messy area and I totally feel the frustration. You know, I think, you know, for those of us and anybody, you know, it, it's, I think when you spent enough time thinking about Bracky and whether that's years or even just a little while and you think, what is going on? Why can't we fix this? Um, what we'd probably call a wicked problem. We've absolutely labelled Bracky a wicked problem because it is just, it feels intractable. It feels like whack-a-mole. As soon as you say, we'll do that, another issue pops up. Totally, yes. <laughs> Infinitely, it feels. So I totally understand the frustration that actually because We've been aware of these problems, as we said, for a long time. The veterinary profession has been aware for a very long time. There's been, you know, surgeries to try and palliate some of these um, anatomical abnormalities for a long time. And the pressure's been on, as I'm sure Alison can explain, in terms of the waves of interest and concern around brachies. The most recent one isn't the first. And it's been going on what we probably feel like for quite a while now, and things aren't changing to the degree that most people in kind of animal welfare organisations or in academia or on the ground or would like. So I think trying to think of more um, dramatic ways to bring about changes, I, I totally understand that. And I think, it again, I need to learn a little bit more about what these changes actually mean. I think it's valuable in the sense that it's really, as you, you said, Sean, it sends a shockwave. It sends a very strong message that an independent court of law 
and for example, in, in this case, a country other than ours, has looked at the evidence, spoken to expert witnesses, and decided that based on that evidence, that those breeds shouldn't at least be bred. A continue, I guess, is difficult because, as you said, they can be bought um, and owned I feel like that's a huge statement and I think this what feels like a ripple of as we said in the Netherlands and the potentially upcoming court cases across Europe um is showing that people are reaching that point of saying well we've given you enough, is enough. you we've given people who are involved in the organized breeding of these dogs a chance to do something about this why hasn't enough happened? And I think if if it's an impetus for for more meaningful or um, more impactful change um, within organised breeding, I think that's that's a good thing. Um, it's as with anything legislation based, it's never the panacea. It's never going to fix everything. And like Alison, I feel frustrated that it doesn't look at ownership rather than breeding. Because fundamentally, you know, bracky is a huge human issue. I find it hilarious every day that most of my job is thinking about people where as an animal behaviour and welfare scientist, and yet I think about humans probably 90% of my day. But it's, you know, it's a completely man-made issue. We don't have we don't have to own these breeds. We don't have to breed these breeds. We choose to. And I think that active choice of making people reflect that it's an active choice to keep all of the breeds that we have um, in existence and perpetuated into the future is is a big part of that. But trying to think of ways um, to to improve things for them um, is is it it feels like there's been a list that most people have tried now and i think that's where legislation has now come to a stage where it's like well if, if everything else doesn't work how do we change people's hearts and minds to make them purchase i say responsibly with a little bit of a oh because responsibly is a horrible word because most owners don't understand what responsible means and i don't mean that as a slight on ownership but it's a really vague word but if if people are able to purchase these dogs without consequence that sounds a bit mean but without consequence that you know they've bought them they can have a dog that's got you know potentially problems for for the rest of its life but they don't have to think about the wider population or what they are fueled by buying those dogs so i do think there needs to be continued pressure on the demand side as well as the supply side given that that is what has led to the huge surge in for example frenchies in the last decade yeah, I think the the two breeds they chose to bring this challenge against in Norway are quite interesting because if we relate them back to kind of how they are in this country and, and the Kennel Club's kind of rules and regulations and advice around them, um, for instance, Cavaliers, you know, they almost inevitably develop um, heart disease, valve disease in their hearts. And, and um, that's heartbreaking as a vet, you know, to have a new family come in with a gorgeous little cavalier puppy. I think we'd all agree they're the sweetest natured little dogs, you know, absolutely brilliant family dog. But, you know, the cynic in us that has seen it a thousand times before might say, well, it's going to break your heart because its its heart is going to fail when it's older and not particularly old. Um, also having kind of painful brain problems, neurological problems associated with head shape. Um, but what some people might find absolutely astonishing is that the Kennel Club doesn't have a kind of a, a mandatory um, heart health scheme for Cavaliers yet. It kind of advises on how to breed responsibly, but it doesn't have a kind of a scheme to actively improve that. That's quite um, unbelievable to me. And then the other thing with the English Bulldog and the UK Kennel Club is that the study that came out in 2016 looking at their genetic diversity said that the only way to change their phenotype and you know breed back healthy English Bulldogs within the UK 
was to outcross them. But then there's this resistance to that within the breed society because they're saying it won't be a pure bulldog anymore if we introduce genetic diversity. So it's almost like a lack of effort from the powers that be and the people who claim to love the Cavalier King Charles. And then there's a sort of a, we don't want to dilute the genetics of our purity lines of of English bulldogs on on that side. Um, And I think that's the thing that kind of angers people a lot and, and kind of makes people think, this is primarily, you know, a kennel club issue or the kennel club need to lead by example if they're going to cast the blame over here on the side that they can't control. Would that be fair to say, do you think? Um, I think you have sort of switched backwards and forwards in what you were saying between the kennel club and breeders, which are two very different stakeholders with very different motivations and approaches. The first thing I would say, which I say all the time in different contexts, is that everybody, we all do it, talks about the Kennel Club as if it was Godzilla, as if it was a single sort of entity um, with a single, maybe slightly malevolent um, brain and approach. Of course, it isn't. Like the government or um, any other large organisation, it's made up of a large number of people, partly constrained by historical practices and um, structures that weren't chosen by anybody who's around today and dealing with the politics of its own existence as well as trying to achieve things. So there are some people within the Kennel Club who absolutely are trying to advance health and other people with other roles within the Kennel Club where that isn't necessarily the top of their agenda. Um, so certainly the Kennel Club of the University of Cambridge um, introduced the respiratory function grading scheme for um, bulldogs and French bulldogs and pugs um, and um, the Kennel Club and BVA introduced a Chiari malformation syringomyelia grading scheme and there is a Cavalier heart scheme. The Kennel Club doesn't currently make any health testing compulsory for anything, though obviously there's a separate debate over whether they should or not. And Mm. certainly it's true that Cavalier breed community is sadly a community that has very much under-engaged with the health efforts that have been provided. Um, There's somewhat more engagement with some elements, at least of the bulldog community, though undoubtedly more could be done. In terms of pure breeding, I could talk for much longer um, than we've got available on what pure breeding means and how that's changed over time and how it doesn't exactly, um, the sort of historical justification that people use for pure breeding now isn't all that historical. Um, I'll have to have you back for part two on that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Part part two could run and run. Um, But I will just make the point that, uh, the little known point that the Kennel Club did actually change its rules in 2012 to allow unregistered dogs to be added to breed registries following certain you know protocols in order to in you know facilitate um the um reintroduction of a bit more genetic diversity to certain breeds um i mean i think it's fair to say that this was never intended to be a sort of whole scale reversal of decades of previous policy but it certainly was reopening the door that had previously for some time been firmly closed Um, And again, that um, sort of new opportunity has been extremely little used. 
Um, so although for 10 years breeders could, if they felt they had um, good reason, add things to kennel club registries, um, they practically never asked to do so. What about, we're going to skip around a bit, I think, on um, solutions because we're approaching the hour point and we'll, we could definitely go a long, long way over. But just skipping around on some of the kind of proposed solutions or how you know different stakeholders can work together. What do you think about the kind of the role of the veterinary uh, profession and, and community and how outspoken we are? I mean, there is, I think it's fair to say, there there is a very perceptible divide or kind of polarisation between sort of the vet community and certain aspects of the kind of brachycephalic breeding community sometimes, because I know myself, try and talk about this, I often get um, levelled criticism that you hate bulldogs. And so, I don't hate bulldogs. I hate what we've done to, the, to them or how far we've gone with some of their characteristics and things. Is there is there a way back from that uh, kind of standoff between certain breeders and, and um, the veterinary community being seen to be judgmental or kind of um, guilt tripping or being kind of too um, authoritative about, you know, what you should be doing and you're bad people if you're if you're breeding this extreme version of dogs. I think some of the perceived kind of conflict there is based at what level are you communicating these messages? So I think at an individual client level, probably alienating your local um brachycephalic breeder so they don't come back and will not listen to any of your messaging because they're not your client anymore is probably not ideal as a long-term strategy although I completely appreciate that the the kind of ethical dilemma of vets engaging with brachycephalic breeding might be quite challenging um and you know given the mental health challenges within the profession I think it's it's you know I can understand that people want to be completely not involved in that. But I think when we've got, you know, the, 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 what we might feel of a softly, softly approach with individual owners or breeders at the level of um, consorts in your practice, I don't think that means that you're a hypocrite if then at a wider level you're involved in the campaigning to educate the wider public um, and to try and enact behaviour change at a wider level via your profession. Um, And I think that's where it's been great to see in the last 10 years, for example, BVA being strong on this issue with their Breed to Breathe campaign and putting together some suggested practical actions for practices of people who might feel a bit disenfranchised, might feel a little bit of learned helplessness that they're just seeing more and more brackies rolling through their practice on a yearly basis so what what can we do so I do think having a joined up approach at the communication level across um, the profession is a good thing but I think at an individual level just shouting I mean it's, it's probably not what most people are doing right now but that antagonism that pushes people away is is losing opportunities to try and have influence to try and get breeders or owners to engage with available schemes to try and um at least educate with sort of patch bit patronizing but try and inform make sure that they that breeders and owners have the most up-to-date evidence that vets have the you know the advantage of of having access to readily yeah great and i guess one of those conflicts you know comes from i guess on an individual level i've talked to a lot of vets who are still in practice and struggle with this in areas where there's lots of bracky breeds and there's a you know they're yeah. seeing the huge surge in in popularity and people kind of deciding this is an income stream and let's do it on a larger scale, um, if we talk about, you know, Frenchies and, and English Bulldogs in particular, cesarean sections, you know, a lot of them have to have literally veterinary surgery in order to give birth. And, and that's a real conflict when you're doing that 
week in, week out, or even day in, day out, you know, when you're on call and things. So I, I definitely, I felt the conflict when I was in clinics and, and it's very hard to say you're standing over, you know, advocating for animal welfare, but then you're facilitating this problem. But you can't ignore the individual animal in need on your on your consultation table at 3am in the morning, you know, at night. I guess, so again, that comes down to kind of practices, having policies, having um, a stance. So it means that, that, you know, it's not an individual who is being a maverick, but things like, um, you know, not advocating or allowing um, elective C-sections within a practice. Again, there's always that argument, oh, they'll just go elsewhere. But as you said, protecting practice, kind of mental health and putting out that message that that isn't appropriate. Um, there's always going to be you know, your rogue um, vets, as there are rogue people in any profession who will, you know, mop that up because it's financially probably a great option if you could just turn a blind eye. And we've seen that a lot recently with the um, rise in AI uh, clinics and um, artificial insemination technology to try and um, breed some of these really popular brachy breeds, particularly around the kind of XL bullies and the more your macho brachies. Um, the extreme think, ones, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think having having a joined up messaging, because I do really feel for new grad vets who are going out there to, you know, to be on the front line of this right now and seeing what their caseload will look like over the next few years. Um, that must feel pretty disheartening if a huge proportion of the dogs you see have predictable and potentially preventable inherited diseases. Um, but yeah, I think encouraging vets to engage more at practice level, at, at profession level initiatives has got to be a big part of that too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a communication part and like I hate to use the word education as well, because it does seem like patronizing from above. And, you know, I think it, it can drive the, that wedge even further if we're seen to be kind of finger wagging or telling people what to do. But um, I think one of the things that uh, the vet profession could do better is engaging the kind of sphere of influence that a lot of people that are seeing these dogs on social media um, and being influenced by celebrity culture and advertising and yeah. actual other influencers. It's like those people are probably not going to listen to the the boring, old, uh, dusty old institution that is the Royal Vet College or the Kennel Club or anything like that. Do you think there's a, a role for kind of trying to find advocates within those communities and bringing them oh, on yes. board and how could we yeah. do that yeah i feel that i feel that really strongly i think you know on the front line in veterinary practice um y- you don't they won't listen to you anyway they they never ask you beforehand what dog should i get you know they turn up with the puppy at which point it's too late and most of the time you are just too busy on the front line in veterinary practice to do more than see the next person you haven't got time to sort of gently build people's um you know revise people's ideas because that's not a process that you can achieve in five or ten minutes you know it just doesn't happen but we we know what a strong um influence social media has in the demand for these dogs um and the breeds that we've been talking about are the brachycephalic breeds that are really popular if there are fewer of a certain breed then it's less of a problem just because there aren't so many of them. And actually, the parallel I have from history doesn't relate to brachycephalic problems. It relates to a different problem that's resurged lately, which is ear cropping. Ear cropping disappeared at the end of the 19th century. And everybody thinks this is because the law changed then. It didn't. What happened was that the Prince of Wales said that he thought it was a bad idea. 
And in society at that time, which was so um, respectful of royalty and so um, aspirational to, you know, comply with um, sort of royal ideas and so on, that was pretty much the catalyst that meant that ear cropping suddenly became socially unacceptable almost overnight. It wasn't actually a change in legislation at all, even though the internet now thinks it was. The parallel here, of course, is not that the royal family has quite that sort of influence anymore, but certainly that social influencing is where these fashions and trends come from. And I totally, absolutely agree that the the battle for hearts and minds is out there on social media. Um, And if only we could get some influencers really understanding what the problems are and going, you know, this isn't cool, guys, we shouldn't be doing this, that would do more good than all of us sitting around in our ivory towers and veterinary practices saying how terrible it all is because they're not going (laughs) to be... Being all academic about it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, completely. Um, Rowena, with some of your research on perceptions of brachycephalic dog owners are quite illuminating in terms mm. of almost that feeling of kind of talking into the void or how do we get the messaging right? And it's not sinking in. And, and we know, is it over half of brachy dog owners that are clinically uh, have obstructive airway disease don't recognise that their dog has a problem. Is that statistic correct? Yeah, absolutely. So it was just under sixty percent in our study, which was a good a whole ten years ago now. Horrifying, and that figure was nearly exactly replicated by the Cambridge Boas team as well. So it looks like more often than not, owners aren't recognising at least the what we'd think of as the more obvious clinical signs of disease. So you're snoring and snorting, and some of the more more, more recent research finding that some of the traits that we would consider clinical signs of disease like exercise intolerance so inability for a dog to sustain normal levels I hate the word normal but um, an expected level of exercise for that a dog of that size um, is celebrated as a breed feature so we asked owners of current brachycephalic dogs over 2000 of them but uh, bulldog pug and french bulldog owners what they would recommend or wouldn't recommend about their breeds and it came through really strongly this perception of them being um breeds for people that don't want to have a dog that they walk people they'd explicitly said that for they don't want to do dog-centric tasks. They just want to be your friend, just want to be there with you as this kind of affable clown. Um, but really celebrating that they're for people who are busy working, for people who are elderly, disabled, for people who don't have much space. And I think that's really a dangerous misconception to perpetuate because, A, you're potentially overlooking dogs who have clinically significant airway disease, but we're just perpetuating that as as characteristics of a breed that other people will then not question. You know, if you take on a dog and you've got snoring and snorting again, well, the other dogs that I see on my pug meetup are also like That's that. normal for a The pug. ones I see on Instagram, yeah. people are joking about the devil noises they make when I tip them upside down, or they're joking about the fact they sleep with their uh, toy in their mouth because they need to keep their airway patient while they're unconscious. There's so many things that have kind of unfortunately um, sunk into the public psyche as cute features of these breeds that are just for the veterinary profession glaring examples of the ways that their anatomy are letting them down and that you know our 
constitute in total a really serious welfare issue so I think the rise of I feel a little bit old for TikTok but anytime that I do have a peek at anything animal related I just want to cry because there's just in general I mean you could have a whole podcast on the horrors of um, manipulating animals for social media for laughs for likes for comments whatever people are after but yeah I think there's so many brackies doing so many abnormal things um, online that you just wouldn't yeah. question them anymore and I feel I'm sure Alison I'm sure yourself feel like the fun police but when you see things like that and you just you've got to stop and think to borrow a strap line from the Bracky working group when you see videos of dogs so Bracky's online is that actually funny or is there something wrong with that animal are you laughing at something that we as humans have imposed upon them and that they could be actively suffering from in that moment and I think reversing those trends is really difficult because calling out what might be a really popular post, you know, your comment will just disappear or you'll be just seen as being a bit of a snowflake. I found some of the social media comments this week on the Norway case really illuminating and horrifying of people just saying, oh, you know, how well, how dare people influence what dog I want to buy or not. And, and and saying this is people just being overly dramatic, you know, just let people enjoy their dogs. They love them. And I think that's the underlying thing with a lot of these debates is people really love their bracky dogs. You know, they're so passionate about them and it's such an emotive issue. And I get it, you know, you feel personally attacked when you sometimes have attached so much of your life and identity to this specific breed of dog and somebody says, no, you're doing something illegal. That must feel pretty awful. And there's so much yeah. complex psychology behind it. But as Alison said, we need fresher ways to tackle this issue that aren't the usual. Let's change the breed standard. Let's create more health testing, which they all have their place. But I think given that this is an issue that's outside of the KC and the show rings jurisdiction for a huge part of this population, we've got to do things on the ground to to get young people to think differently because you know, when we all grew up, there would have been different dogs on the television, in films, in adverts that probably would have influenced us. As a child, my passion was for Turner and Hooch and I wanted a dog to Bordeaux, which as an adult, yeah. thankfully, I did not go through with. But, or you know, Lassie and the Dalmatians. Yeah, and for the... sure. You know, there's, there's literal studies documenting the effects of films on dog popularity. But yeah. the fact that our brackies are so pervasive in the media now doesn't bode well for the next you know decade plus of young people becoming purchasers of puppies first time dog owners yeah 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 Yeah. and i I think um you know the the show the show world is obviously what set the appearance of most of these breeds the ones that are kennel club registered recognized but you know if you go to a dog show it's not a young person's hobby most people at dog shows are you know middle-aged upwards and the younger people um dog shows and all that side of things just aren't on their radar in the same way um and i think it's very i'm not saying that there aren't issues in the show world or the kennel club registered population i'm saying that i think in some ways that's a low-hanging fruit because it's documented it's where the problem has historically been it's where people are used to attributing blame um and i'm not at all sure that the future of 
dog breeding and pet ownership is going to look the same as the past. And if we want to um, address where we're going to be in 10 or 20 years time, we need to think about where the next generation of dog breeders are getting their ideas and engage with them in those places in order to try and make a difference to the dogs of the future. Yeah. Yeah. Great point, actually. Um, I was going to say to you, Rowena, there where you said you're too old for TikTok. I am too old for TikTok too, but I was. <laughs> but you're going on, there anyway. <laughs> I was living on my own in a one-bedroom flat in London. Not yeah, able yeah, to see yeah. anyone at the start of lockdown, and I developed a TikTok habit oh, that I'm not proud of. But it has it has um, given me the ability to see what the youth are doing yeah. in terms of <laughs> posting dogs and dog trends, and maybe how I say sometimes. And it was very interesting actually to see over the course of. Um, the pandemic on TikTok about dog ear cropping and yeah. how over time you might have had one, you know, forgotten post saying, oh, that poor dog's ears. But over the course of several months and especially within the UK, seeing as, as it got more attraction, you know, half and half in some posts saying yeah. this is a mutilation. This is what. So I think it really, really does speak to talking to the right talking to the future um, owners of, of these dogs and, and buyers and breeders of these dogs, consumers of these dogs, I suppose. So um, I guess to, to finish, um, hopefully on a kind of positive or encouraging note, like what would both of you say to someone now listening who maybe was thinking about getting one of the extreme brackies, a Frenchie, a pug or an English bulldog? Um, do you have any advice for them? Um, I'd probably say that, so from, again, from some of our research, finding that people really want a, a affable family dog that is a really good companion, that's good with your kids, that, that are kind of touted as unique features of those breeds, that they're absolutely not. They're dogs. There are so many dog breeds out there and so many crossbreeds who can offer all of those things without potentially the heartbreak of the disease burden. And I'd really just encourage people who are interested in those bracky breeds to go out, try and meet other breeds of dog, talk to other dog owners, go to discover dogs. And you can have your wish list of traits, but I think just focusing in on what your dog looks like doesn't make much difference when you're living with them. You know, it's them as a little person. I'll to use that word, but it's their character that's, you know, what becomes part of your family, not just their looks. So prioritising that when you're thinking of a breed will hopefully pay dividends in terms of the relationship you'll have with that dog, how well it fits in your life. So it doesn't conflict with your actual lifestyle. Um, but then also just thinking of future you, do you want that dog for, you know, 12 plus years, the average UK lifespan of a dog um, with potentially just some of the kind of old age related issues that we see or just dog related issues? Or do you want to end up with a dog that you will be spending a lot of time making friends with your vet over and could end up really heartbroken you know we see those owners coming in through our hospital on a weekly basis and they are heartbroken they felt like they might have done the right thing um at the time they might have done some of the due diligence in purchasing that dog but it was still an extreme bracky and it still ended up unfortunately maybe dodging a couple of the issues but with usually a really long list of problems and you can you can avoid it I think that's the bottom line is we are we are lucky in many ways that we have proliferated so many different dogs with so many different looks and so many different characters that, that there's options out there you don't have to be um stuck within this little bubble yeah yeah an average lifespan I just looked it up last week for English bulldogs now in the UK 7.2 years 
which is really tragic, isn't it? It's really heartbreaking. You know, I'm sitting here with my, my six-year-old dog and I think I really hope he's only halfway through his life now. If I thought I only had 12 months left with him, I'd be really upset. So I just, you know, it's obviously all about quality of life, but if we can have quality with a good quantity too, then that's what most people internationally want from a dog. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Alison, what about you? What would be your message as people thinking about brachycephalic dog or thinking about another brachycephalic dog after the current one? Because that's a big trend too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, I'd agree with Rowena that, you know, if you if there's a certain brachy breed you like, there is something else that has similar traits with a less extreme conformation, doubtless. If you're still determined to get a brachycephalic dog, or maybe you're trying to influence your friend or relation who isn't going to be um, influenced on breed but might listen to other things, then please at least consider really carefully where you get it from. Don't um, fuel the evil side of the puppy trade. If you get it from a breeder where it's actually been health tested, then you're reducing your chances of it having the more severe brachycephalic issues. And a breeder who um, of, of a registered breed who's following the Kennel Club or Breed Club Health Scheme suggestions and going for respiratory function testing and all that sort of thing. None of these things guarantee there'll be no problems, but at least if you choose a, a dog of that sort from a breeder who's making efforts to breed for health, you're going to cut down your chances of problems or get a rescue. And then again, you're not stimulated, you know, you can get rescues of, of various um, breeds often through no fault of their own particularly as we come out of the pandemic and people realize that their pandemic puppy buying might not have been such a good idea and then you can have a dog of the breed you've got that secret guilty craving for without actually stimulating the you know dark side of the puppy trade or, or buying a, a dog that you know is a, is, is a you know on one level a product bed, bred for ill health perhaps so there yeah. are ways to be more mindful in 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 following a brachycephalic yen, even if somebody is absolutely determined still to have a brachycephalic dog. Yeah. And I know there's um, criticism of this kind of trend as well, but there's also the crossbreeding of these trendy breeds. We've seen it massively with the pug, with the likes of jugs crossing them with a Jack Russell Terrier so that they've got a muzzle again, or puggles or different crossbreeds. There can be problems in the breeding there as well. But um, one of the things we're seeing as well with English Bulldogs is stepping outside of the idea of pedigree and going for an old time or a Victorian type Bulldog that people have taken it on themselves to breed back in characteristics and, and, and blood from other breeds, genetics from other breeds that make them look more like the the bulldog of old. Um, that could be an idea as well, couldn't it? We've seen that just recently, that there's the continental bulldog, um, I think originated from Switzerland, right, Alison? Um, but they've recently undergone the health, um, respiratory health grading with Cambridge to, you know, you have some actual data on obviously self-selected dogs, um, but again, having a slightly more moderate look. I definitely think that there is a market for more moderate brachies. As Alison said, if people really want, they can't avoid wanting a slice of bracky, but they're not wed to the more extreme look. I definitely think, even if it's not with the show ring, but if we could have responsibly bred, welfare conscious breeding of um, potentially crosses, even if it include, you know, doesn't have to be F1, if we've got back crosses of you know uh, the the type we see on the continent, so things like um, retro mops, which is yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
with hugs with, cross with Shibari News to leave their noses while keeping the other MPRV pugs as well, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's that you know getting the market and getting would-be owners to to drive demand for health tested moderate brackies i think that's still a wide open goal i don't think all um prospective brachy owners want an incredibly flat-faced dog they just like elements of it i managed to persuade a family member that just wanted a battered dog they were said they wanted a french yes well what about them i like their big ears and i was like right okay well you want something it's the ears let's ignore the face let's go find something with big ears um so it is I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit a bit more, um, yeah, trying to find out what, what the public want for people who have an inkling that they think they might want a brekkie. Um, and in part, I mean, we, as we mentioned at the start about um, baby schema, it might be that those dogs that don't more closely fit the baby schema with the more extreme looks might be less cute, might be less desirable. But I think we need to test some of that out and see what is the kind of tipping point, forgetting about health, my PhD was all about the tipping point for confirmation in terms of health risks, but actually what's the tipping point for desirability of these breeds? How moderate can we make them before somebody says, that doesn't look like a Frenchie anymore? And again, you need to get Alison back for the purity chat. But if people are more willing to buy crosses or they're more willing to buy dogs that have had some injection of genetic diversity, whether it's from unregistered members of the same breed or if it's from a completely different breed, then I think there's a piece to explore there. I think we really need to rethink and kind of reinvent the UK puppy market because it's pretty toxic for dogs right now. But I don't. the owners don't. You know, prospective owners don't want that um so i think there's there's a real shake-up needed whether it's on the horizon or not i suppose depends on a lot of the stakeholders involved yeah a whole lot of thinking outside a whole lot of boxes that's what we need yeah. i think 100 <laughs> percent. it's it's a mess but it's not insurmountable i think Let's hope not. hopefully <laughs> not and we have to remember it's animal welfare always takes time one of my kind of animal welfare um, heroes is professor christine mickle who was at the time my undergrad um project uh, uh program leader at bristol but is now at rvc we're very lucky to have her and she worked for years on the battery cage and her phd showing about the welfare impact of the battery cage on laying hens and it took decades of her working on that issue to lead to a ban, to lead to incremental change. So, yeah, I think it is sometimes you just have to go, right, I can't change the world overnight and not, not, no one of us can change it. But I think it's great to see more people interested. And so long as they don't just turn up and go, I want to talk to you about brackets, we need to change the breed standard, then get on board. Let's <laughs> see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, it just popped into my head there to say, slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. I was going to say, catchy monkey that actually is a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, where can people find out more about your work, Alison? you want to learn more um, or follow what you're doing? Well, um, that's a good question because I'm just about to have the PhD Viva in about three weeks' time. So um, the other side of that, I'll be able to get more of the work out into the world, hopefully. For the moment, I've got a chapter in Rowena's and Dan O'Neill's book on brachycephalic diseases, which is largely aimed at the veterinary market, but my chapter talks about the history of these problems and how that can inform what we do about them in the future. Um, and people can follow me on Twitter. Um, I don't tweet very often, but when I do, it's usually about the history of pedigree dog health. And my handle is a- at ACD Allison. 
Perfect. Thanks. And what about you, Rowena? Give a, give a little plug there to that amazing book. <laughs> oh, I get, I've forgotten about the book. How terrible am I? I should never do anything like this ever again because I, a book, I just a book. <laughs> Look, you should want a coffee. Oh, I'm <laughs> away over there somewhere. Uh, I need to start paying you more, Alison. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, the book, the book, that thing that we put all the effort into. Yeah, no, the book is fantastic in that it's, I can say that because as an editor, I only wrote one chapter. Not just you, right? No, there's 30 authors from across the globe. They're all amazing. Alison's chapter is spectacular. Everybody who I talk to about the book is like, oh my God, have you read Alison's chapter? I'm like, yeah, of course I have. <laughs> but that is a really important one. But it explores the issues. It's, as you said, it's aimed mainly at the veterinary kind of animal welfare, animal professionals market. But it's got a more traditional core second section on the clinical elements so it'd be great for vets vet nurses people in practice um looking for some inspiration on how to manage their patients and all of the issues that they come with but the first half when I was first approached to do a book on brachy I said well I really would much prefer it to have a give the context because I mean yes textbooks are often think thought of as old hat because you know they're a moment in time and then it passes but I think there was a critical mass of thinking about as you said the history the ethics the international um, efforts of what is being done on these issues right now I obviously talked about some of the work on the hows and whys of people acquiring brackies but it gives that extra that hopefully will interest more people so I'd absolutely buy the book uh, in terms What's it of Oh my God, don't. Alison, can you tell me what it's called? It's got a very long title. It's it's not the catchiest title, I have to say. It's called Health and Welfare of Brachycephalic Flat-Faced Companion Animals, A Complete Guide for Veterinary and Animal Professionals. Amazing. CRC Press, there you go. Google it, you'll find it. Um, I'm following you on social media, Rowena. Yeah, absolutely. So Twitter usually there. Doing a bit of academic self promotion for any papers that we have coming out, but I think Twitter is spectacular for linking up people and has led to reading more papers that I would never have found any other way or meeting people that I would never have found. But yeah, I am at Dog's Body RVC. Um, so yeah, please do get in touch. I also, we've literally won, I think once mentioned the pandemic phenomenon, and that is my current both bugbear and research theme so okay. if anybody bought a dog a puppy aged under 16 weeks and they're in the uk and it was from a private seller you didn't rescue it you didn't breed it yourself we have a new um study coming out this friday which probably is this going to age your podcast coming out on friday the no, 11th i'll put friday. it in the show notes and uh <laughs> then when it's no longer open you've missed the boat <laughs> amazing well you've got a month you've got from 11th of feb to 11th of march to tell us about how and why you acquired your dog during the pandemic um brilliant i will pop that in for sure if you thank send me you, the Sean. Link. Love yeah, it. no Thank worries. You. Guys, we could talk for another hour very easily. We could probably <laughs> talk for another three hours quite easily as well, but um, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for coming on. And I definitely um, love to kind of explore it more with you. Um, Alison, definitely talking about pure breeding and, and pedigree breeding is a fascinating subject. Um, so maybe we'll have that on for season six. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks if so you've much. Enjoyed- no worries if you've enjoyed this episode of sean's wildlife podcast please do like and subscribe share with your friends um and if you could give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice that would also help get us to a wider audience so for now it's over and out and thanks again to Alison and rowena for a great episode Mm -hmm.